You can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 17. John 17. Before we begin, I will ask you to stand with me if you're able and read from John chapter 17, verses 6 through 8. Beginning in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Thank you. You may be seated. If you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me once again in prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord, I pray that You would remove all pretense. Lord, everything that we assume and take for granted about You and Your glory and Your power and Your Spirit, God, strip us that we might see how desperately dependent we are. Oh, Father, the need is great. And you are mighty and able to meet that need. Lord, I pray that you would give clarity of mind, both to me and to everyone listening. That we might benefit from your word. That your spirit would come in might and power and speak through me. Oh, God, I ask that you would guard me from error. Lord, protect us from going in a wrong direction. Magnify your Son. O oh God, we are living in days which many of us can look at and say that we're unsure of what is coming. Lord, I pray you would fix our hearts on what is true, what you have said and what you've done in your Son. Lord, let Him be exalted. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may have noticed even the conviction a little bit coming out in that prayer. I like to listen to old preachers. I like to listen to some new ones, but mostly old ones, mostly dead ones. And one fascinating thing to me about old dead preachers is how often you'll find that they'll be talking about things as if you would think that they said that just yesterday. You could listen to sermons from the past and it seems that in many ways the devil's schemes don't ever really change that much. He continues to employ the same things because the hearts of men are weak. The hearts of men and women are able to fall and they're tempted to sin, taken hold of by the God of this world. And so it's interesting to me to listen to these things. And even just recently, two things caught my eye this week, not to incorporate too many other things into this sermon, but just, just for introduction's sake. Um, the first thing that I listened to was a discussion on the, the firing line program with the uh, William Buckley Jr. And it was a debate between, at the time, I suppose it was members of the ACLU and what they called the conservative right. And it was just fascinating watching the challenges and the ACLU saying, we don't want the, we need separation of church and state and all these conservative right-wingers, they're just trying to oppress the people with religion and with their theology and all this. And then I listened later to a, an interview that, that Mr. Buckley did with um, Billy Graham of all people. 
And what stood out to me in both of these instances is Billy Graham, he made the observation, this must have been in the 80s, I'm guessing, that he said, I don't know if this country is going to last until year 2000. He said, the Lord surely will come back by then. Just his observation of the landscape. And you know, that's not a new idea. You see, the the early church, many of them were expecting, actually, during, after Jesus' ascension, many of them were expecting Him to return in their lifetime. They expected His return to be that immediate. And the early church, for many years, were constantly looking for His return as they measured the world around them. And I say these things to say that the church is meant to have a, a source of strength and encouragement, a foundation And I know if you're like me and you look at the world around us today, surely the thought has crossed your mind. Things are looking pretty bad. But my encouragement to you is to Christian people observing a world run by the God of this world, that's kind of always going to be the case. Jesus has told us already that there will be wars and rumors of wars, chaos and evil in the world. And my encouragement is that we have a grounding as we look upon these things. Our text, we begin in verse 6 of John 17, and we see Jesus saying this, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, this coming in the context of Jesus' prayer, this is a genuine prayer Jesus offered up, and yet it's right and appropriate for, appropriate, excuse me, for us to dig out diamonds of Glorious doctrine from Jesus' words here. Here's the point. You're not going to get a more pristine expression of truth than the mouth of the Son of God to the Father. You're not going to get a greater depth of insight into truth than we have before us now. And one of the things we're seeing here, a repeated theme in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I have manifested your name. Now here's my question. Do you see this to be a central theme of what Jesus has been telling us this entire book long? The central theme of all of Jesus' life and ministry was to manifest the Father's name and to make Him known. That's why He came. Now what does it mean that Jesus... Jesus is speaking in the past tense. I have manifested your name. What does it mean that Jesus manifested the Father's name? John chapter 1 and verse 18, we see this. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Here's the expression. No one's ever seen God. This Jesus says, I've manifested Your name. In the very first chapter, we saw that this One who's at the Father's side, this Jesus, this Word made flesh, has made Him known. John chapter 1 and verse 49, fast forward just a little bit, we see Nathanael answering him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You recall the instance there? Jesus is introduced to Nathanael, and he tells him that he saw him under the fig tree, and as soon as Nathanael realizes that Jesus saw him, he recognizes he is God. Jesus says, I have manifested your name. And then in Matthew 16, verses 15 through 17, Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? You'll remember He's asked them, Who do men say that I am? And some say Elijah, some say a prophet, some say John the Baptist. Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Here's the point. Jesus has manifested the name of God. And here's the primary thing we need to get about this. A manifestation of the name of the Father is not simply a declaration of who God is. Do you catch what I'm saying? Jesus, when He says, I have manifested your name, He's not just telling them, I've told you what God is like. That's not what He's saying. It's much more than that. You see, the people of God had enjoyed many true proclamations from God through men before Jesus came into the world. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, Long ago at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But... In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Here's my meaning. The author of the Hebrews says, God has spoken to His people for a long time through prophets, through the fathers. But in these last days, something different has happened. God has spoken to us in an entirely unique way. Jesus says, I have manifested Your name. What it means that Jesus has manifested the Father's name is that God has not only spoken to His people, but that He has blessed them with a divine visitation. God Himself had come into the midst of His people. When Jesus prays, I have manifested Your name, He's saying, I have come to Your people, to the people who belong to You as we're going on to see, and I've come manifesting God in the flesh. We read in the, in the call to worship from Isaiah 64 and verse 1, Isaiah prays, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. What a prayer. Jesus, we're seeing, I've manifested your name. That's an answer to Isaiah's prayer. Isaiah says, rend the heavens. Jesus says, I've manifested, I've come down. To your people, God. I've come down to your people, Father. And manifested God to them. An interesting expression that we find in Luke chapter 1. What's interesting about this is Jesus hasn't been born yet. And yet, Zechariah says this. In verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. And then again from John 1 and verse 14, John says, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This dwelling among us, tabernacling among us, God has come in the midst. God has rent the heavens to do something in the world. Jesus says, I've manifested Your name. There's all the significance in the world in an expression like that. And as I'm saying, the incarnation of Christ was the answer to Isaiah's prayer for God to rend the heavens. As well as Zechariah puts it that the Lord has visited and redeemed His people. The question we're left asking, and this is where we begin to see, what's the point in my introduction about examining a world that's in ruin and headed off a cliff? What's the point in examining these things in light of that situation? Why was it necessary that God the Son this one who has manifested the name of God, why was it necessary that He leave the courts of heaven and come down? The title of the sermon today is God Came Down. He has come down amongst His people. 
Why was it necessary? Do you suppose that Jesus coming into the world was merely a leisurely stroll upon the earth? Just kind of checking things out? We saw in a previous message, actually last week, that Jesus coming into the world included an assignment from the Father. You recall in John 17 and verse 4, he says, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And do you remember what the primary focus of that work was? It was as, that as a man, he would accomplish all righteousness. But not just obeying an external or legal law. The obedience to the law of God is the perfect reflection of God himself. Jesus is saying this accomplishing the works, the work the father's given me to do has to do with revealing and declaring God himself. It was not merely to fulfill a legal requirement. And again, as we saw last week, the end or goal of that legal requirement was that we should glorify God. Here's what we see in Christ's coming. His perfect obedience to the law was at one and the same time a living proclamation of God's righteous character. That's the first thing. And that's what we're going to see a bit of more today. A, a perfect proclamation of God's righteous character as well as a substitutionary work on our behalf. Now the question is, why was this necessary? Why was it necessary that Jesus says these things? I have manifested your name. He didn't just have a message for them to listen to. He had something to come and do on their behalf. What could have been so perverse, so twisted about the human race that it required God himself to come and do what man could not do? We have a, a very clear picture of this, and I want us to listen closely to this description from Genesis chapter 18. You can turn there with me or take this down if you like. Genesis chapter 18. I'm going to read for you verses 22 through 33 in light of why Jesus came. And don't dismiss this as the worst people to ever live at a glance. Genesis 18, 22 says this. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of those 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again. But this one, suppose 10 are found there. 
He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. And when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. You know what's going on there in Sodom? Mass rebellion, wickedness, evil, sin, finding its culmination in homosexuality. An indication, Romans 1 tells us, of being utterly given over and given up by God to your wickedness. That's this place, this city of Sodom. Of course, Abraham's got a nephew living down there that he doesn't want destroyed. So he begins pleading with God not to destroy it if there are 50 righteous people. And you can see this unfolding. It's as though Abraham says, well, okay, I know there's probably not 50 righteous there. He says, well, how about 40, Lord? And he says, well... Yeah, there can't be 40 either. And he continues all the way down to 10. And and the Lord says, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Well, guess what? The Lord did destroy it. Do you know why? Because there was not even one righteous. And you can look in the Scriptures, there's an expression, righteous lot. But he wasn't righteous because of his own merit. He wasn't righteous because of his own obedience to God. And here's the principle that's demonstrated in that. The whole world, Israel included, was lying in sin and corruption. This is the answer. Why was it necessary that this Jesus manifest God? Why come in the flesh? Because the entire world was lying in sin and corruption. And all the various nations, they may not have been as evidently given over as Sodom in those days. But the roots of evil existed in every human heart. Consider with me from Matthew chapter 11. There's an intimate application to us today. From Matthew chapter 11, this is Jesus' own words in His day upon the earth and the days of His flesh. He says this in Matthew 11, beginning in verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. What a word. The state of wickedness on display in Sodom may have had a a greater expression of, of practical evil. And the homosexuality that was rampant, which wasn't rampant in Capernaum in this time. But I'll tell you this. There was a greater expression of the glory, power and majesty of God in the Son of God, making manifest the name of the Father in Capernaum in this time. than even in the fire and brimstone that fell from heaven, even in the blinding of the people of Sodom as they pursued the angels outside Lot's house. Here's the point. These people in all the world, not just Sodom and Gomorrah, are living in evil and sin. And here's my question today. I was just asking Wayne this morning. As you look around in the world and nation in which you live, are we not living in Sodom today? Can we say that with any degree of integrity? That there is such 
pervasive evil in the land. Here we are celebrating Mother's Day. Now, what does it even mean to be a mother anymore? A society that wants to rip the beauty and goodness of God from what it means to be a woman. This is Sodom, and yet we must confess ourselves that the same evil that leads to that heinous expression is in each of us. When we look around, do we find that the world is swallowed up in ruin and iniquity? What is the world? Get this a paraphrase from maybe a direct quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. What is the world but you and me times a million? What is Sodom except you and me with no restraint from God upon it? You see, I believe that we have a great need, even as was seen in Isaiah's day, even as was true in Jesus' day. In our day today, we have a great need for God to once again rend the heavens and deliver us before that day of vengeance, that day of judgment He told them in Matthew 11 is upon us. Have we not an urgent need for a glorious manifestation of God? Jesus declares triumphantly in John 17 in His prayer that He has already manifested the Father's name. The next question we come to is who are those that He has manifested the Father to? He says, I have manifested Your name to the people whom You gave Me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. One of the particular truths which has been evident in John's gospel for the last several chapters, and which is going to become even more clear throughout this prayer, is Christ's special emphasis on his people. We begin seeing this really in chapter 13, where Jesus' public ministry pretty much came to a halt. And he begins focusing uniquely and specially on his disciples. And ministering to them in particular. And here we find this expression. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Just one clear and almost obvious observation that we ought to make. If Jesus had manifested the name of God to everyone in the world, they never would have crucified him. If everyone in the world saw him rightly as he was, as the son of God. It's because he said, I am the son of God. They said, blasphemy. No, you're not. You're not going to rule over us. That's why they hung him on the cross. But Jesus says, the ones that I've manifested your name to. And notice, this isn't something Jesus doesn't say, I've tried to manifest your name. He doesn't say, I hope that they've gotten it. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. There is a clear distinction in our text between the people given to Him by the Father and the world. And we're going to see that distinction even more clearly made as we work through the Gospel of John chapter 17. But notice this. The singular difference between these two groups of people, the ones given to Him by the Father and the world, what's the difference between them? It has nothing to do with the people or their choices. You see that in the text? Jesus just says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. What distinguishes them is that they've been given to him by the father. Nothing that they've done, nothing that they've earned, not any choice that they've made has everything to do with God and his choice. This means the whole world, Christian people included, 
was utterly bankrupt and dead in sin with nothing to offer God that he might show them mercy. What we see is that God in his perfect wisdom and his perfect love has chosen to show mercy on some and call them out of the world. These these people he's chosen to show mercy to he gave to his son and these whom he's given to the son, the son has manifested the father too. Now, here's the most important question you can ask. Am I one of the people whom the Father has given to the Son? How can you know for certain that you are one of these people? There's only two groups of people in the world. There only ever has been two. There's only those who are given to Christ by the Father and everybody else in the world that's destined for hell and destruction. We would be two apart from this work of God, but that's the only two people there are. How important is it that you know you're one of the people whom the Father has said, Son, I'm giving this one to you. How important is it that you are one of that number? And how can you know for sure? Jesus says in verse 6, the last part, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. The first thing that is true of those who have been given to the Son by the Father is that they already belong to the Father. Do you see that in your text? Yours they were. This means that they did not become the fathers or the sons by some act of obedience and not even by some act of faith. You see, Jesus is saying, these ones that I've manifest you to, Father, they were yours before I did that. They were already the fathers. Just glance with me briefly at Ephesians chapter 1. One of the saddest truths in all of professing Christianity today is the vehemence and hatred that people have for the doctrine of God's grace and election. It's a sad thing that people reject this. Why so? Because it is the message of hope that we have. And it's the certainty of our confidence that God will save us. It's not left up to us. Yours they were. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 3 through 6, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Now what does this text tell us about what point in history did this happen? This this giving of the Father to the Son. When did they belong to God? What's actually not in history, is it? Before history. It says before. We were chosen in He chose us in Him. The Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's the biblical truth, the repeated truth throughout all of the Bible. And what Jesus is telling us is yours they were. Your attachment to God will be entirely due to the grace of God. That's the first observation about who are those whom Christ has manifested the Father to. They are those who already belong to the Father. The second thing which is true of those who have been given to the Son by the Father, is that they keep His Word. You see that right out of the text. Yours they were and you gave them to Me. They have kept your 
Word. Now, it is incredibly important that we take this point in light of the last one. What do I mean? You cannot become a child of God by keeping His Word. That's not what this text is saying. Jesus says, yours they were. They were already yours and you gave them to me. And it's true of them. It's an indication of that fact that they have kept your word. If by the supernatural grace of God, you've been made aware of a living relationship to God, you will keep his word and keeping the word of Christ. The word of God is not the cause of being connected to God. It is the effect of it. If you are one of this number, you will keep his word. Now, the next question logically is, what does it mean to keep his word? I've seen a lot about this throughout the Gospel of John. Let me just share a couple of references to this. At least two we'll look at. John 8, 31 through 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. So this expression abiding in His Word, that's very similar, almost identical to keeping His Word. Remaining with His Word. Abiding in His Word. That's what it means to be a true disciple. And then, He said more recently in John 15, 7, If you abide in Me and My words abide, remain, stay with you, in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, again, who are those who make up this number given to the Son by the Father? Who are they? The people who keep His Word. What does that mean? The immediate thing that enters most of our minds when we hear this expression, they have kept your Word. What is that? If I said a true disciple is one who keeps the Word of Christ, what do you think of? What comes into your mind? Probably most of us think about working or being obedient to certain commands. Now, as we're going quickly to see in our Sunday school hour, obedience to the commands of Christ is a necessary part of following Him. If you're not interested in what He said or commanded of you, then you don't belong to Him. So there is a relationship between true Christianity and obeying Christ. But it seems to me that most bypass altogether the very heart and center of Christian obedience. Where does Christian obedience start? Yes, we listen to the commands of Christ. But what's the first one He gives you? Where must you start? Glance back with me at John chapter 6. We want to know who are the ones given by the Father to the Son whom He has manifested the Father to. Who are they? Because these are the only ones that will be saved. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 27, we see this. You recall Jesus has fed the 5,000 people and then there's been some time in between. They catch back up with Him. They want Him to feed them again. And we find this in verse 27. Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Isn't that the question? People here, if you want to, if you want to know that you're a part of this number, you've got to keep his word. And someone says, Aha, 
So I've got to be obedient. I've got to keep the law. I've got to do some work. What do I, what work do I have to do? That's what they ask him. Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's remarkable, isn't it? What work? What does it mean to keep Christ's word? Here's the first thing it means that you're believing his word, that you're trusting him. That's the first thing we see in this. To keep the word of Christ is to see and believe his word and his promises and that they are the only source of life and satisfaction for your soul. Your only hope of eternal life. These are the marks of those who have been given to the Son by the Father. The question is, if you want to know, am I one who's been given by the Father to the Son? Are you believing Christ? Are you believing His Word? Particularly the Word that He alone is the bread of life. He is the only one who gives eternal life. Apart from any work that you might do. That's the starting point. Verse 7 of John 17 goes on to give us a little bit more detail about this very word. Verse 7 says, Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Now remember, this is in the context of Jesus' prayer. Jesus is praying. He's saying, I've manifest your name to these people that you've given me. And they have believed your word. And now he's saying, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. What is the point in this? Not only... Do his true followers believe his word as a mere prophet? But they see the words of Christ as coming to them from God himself. That's what Jesus is saying. Not only have they believed my word, but they realize that my word is your word. The, the word that comes to them from me is not like their other prophets. This is God in the flesh speaking. Remember, Peter made that proclamation. We saw you're the Christ, the son of the living God. That wasn't said about anybody else. That was revealed to him by the Spirit we saw. You see, when you read the words of Christ and hear them proclaimed even now today, are you struck by the fact that God is speaking to you? As you hear this, the words of Jesus, are you realizing God is talking to me? That's what these followers of His understood and that's what all of His believers have come to understand. Now, that is not to say that Christians have a perfect understanding of all that Jesus said. But here's the point that they live in submission to all that he has said. Here's the reality. Just remember from recently, back in John chapter 16, do you remember Jesus said this to them? He says, I said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you'll ask in my name. And I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf for the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Now catch this. And his disciples said, "Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus is saying, now they know that everything you have given me is from you. Here's the point. As we saw back in John 16, those very disciples were going to fail. Jesus asks them immediately, do you now believe? You're going to face difficulty and opposition. You're going to fall away and fail. But you're not going to utterly fall away. Here's my point. 
that the reality that true Christians know that everything that Jesus has given us is from the Father does not mean we have a perfect understanding of it. But it means we're submitted to it. That's what's expressed in these disciples. Listen to this thought. They say, we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. You don't need an interrogation. You don't need to prove who you are. You don't need to do more than you've already done for us to believe that you've come from God. That's the point in what they're saying. They're still going to fail, but Jesus won't. They can trust Him. The Christian, the one who's been given to the Son by the Father, is one who has stopped criticizing the words of Christ. You've stopped putting Jesus on trial. You no longer place Jesus on the dock to question and examine Him and see, is He trustworthy? You realize that His words put you on trial. The words of Christ take hold of you and they put you up there so that you see your sin and failure. And at the moment you see the shame and guilt of your failure and you're torn apart by conviction over what you've done, all of a sudden you begin to hear in the very words of Christ a message that comes to you of forgiveness and love. He says, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. All the miracles... All the gracious and material provisions that Jesus has made up until this point, all the mighty demonstrations of power were all testimonies of the Father that this was indeed His Son and whom He was well pleased. This is the culmination of all of this. And it's hinged on His Word. Recall back from John 5 and verse 36, Jesus says this, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Speaking of John the Baptist, he says, for the works that the father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the father has sent. me." You see this? That's why I'm telling you that Jesus fulfilling all righteousness was part of the work the father gave him to do. But it's also these material works, these evidences that Jesus is sent by the father. Vindication of the words when he says, I and the Father are one. You can bank on that statement. And these disciples are coming to the point where they're submitted to him in that very way. As one who is not only a messenger from God, but God himself made manifest among them. That's what they're coming to see. And that's the way in which Jesus is praying. And that's how true Christians see the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God manifest. God acting, God not just sitting on the side doing nothing, but involved in the world. That's what it means that he's manifested his name. And the works which Christ accomplished proclaim to us the heart of the father toward his people. When Jesus says, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. I don't believe this is limited only to the words that he said, though that is the primary emphasis, clearly so. But when we begin to see that it's not only the words of Christ that are revealing the Father, but it's his person, it's his character, it's his love, it's his miracles. It's all that Jesus did is telling you this is who God is. When you see that, you begin to see the miracles themselves are testifying to you of the heart of the Father towards his people. They're not only proving that Jesus is who he says that he is, but they're revealing a father who is full of grace and compassion. Now, I say, is there a greater message needed in the world? 
Is there anything more relevant in your own life than to know that God the Father is full of grace and compassion toward those who do not deserve it? I just am struck by the expression Kelly read in the New Testament reading there from Mark where you have this man with the withered hand and it says these Pharisees are they're un- unwilling to even say whether it's okay to do good or to save a life. It says Jesus was angry. He saw the hardness of their hearts. Why was He angry? Because of a lack of love and compassion for a poor man with a withered hand. The man with the withered hand was not righteous. He didn't deserve that. But the compassion and love of God on display is grace and mercy to those who don't deserve it. And you can trace that line through every one of His miracles. If you're one, I ask the question, are we living in Sodom? Is the need of the hour which calls for a rending of the heavens and God doing something great in our midst. If you hear that and you're not compelled by a longing for that, I submit to you that you've not even begun to understand the depths of your own sin and depravity, nor the extent of the experience of God's love toward his people. Now, here's my question. So we move into our last verse. Is it enough to agree with these things theoretically? Is it enough? Jesus, the very word manifest, he's been manifested. He's manifested the name of the father. That manifestation, that coming down demands more than just a word that you agree with. Something has to happen. And I suggest to you the same thing is true for us and for the lost world. It's not enough to say I agree with the words of Jesus here to put it another way. Was it enough for the saints of old to agree that a Messiah was needed without him ever actually coming? Was it enough for Isaiah to lift up that prayer and say, God, rend the heavens and come down just wishful thinking and and it would be nice. And yeah, that's what needs to happen. But if he never came down, it's not enough. If he never did that, Submit to you that our agreement with the truth doesn't actually accomplish anything in the soul. We we need God to do more, to do infinitely more than mere agreement with truth. Verse 8 tells us, John 17, 8, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, And have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Here's the expression. Receiving. Listen to what he says. They have received them. This is what's true of those given to him by the Father. They have received the words of Christ. And they know them in truth. They know in truth that Jesus came from them. This is is more than just an agreement with facts. This is something... That's happened inside you. And it is profoundly supernatural. And I maintain the religious world today might agree. You might agree with a great amount of truth. And yet the truth that you claim to know. Perhaps has never penetrated the soul. One of the greatest charges you'll find in the New Testament. Jesus spoke to religious people. In John 5, 39 and 40, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life 
and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Here's the point. The Scriptures, all the Old Testament, pointing to Jesus. They're reading the Old Testament. They loved their Old Testament. They knew it by heart. And they refused to come to the one every line was pointing to. They refused Jesus. Now here's my point. Jesus, He says, you refuse to come to Me. The one who came to them. The one who condescended to man. He manifested to man. He came as incarnate to men. They refused. They did not see that all of this truth throughout their Bibles of that day was pointing to a God who was coming to them. What it means to belong to the number of people which have been given to the Son by the Father means that God the Spirit will ensure that you know in your soul that the words of Christ are so. There is an effectual calling, isn't there? There's a work of the Spirit of God that tells you inside these words are true. And I don't care if all the world says they're not. They are. God has testified with my spirit that these things are so. It's a work of the Spirit of God. Jesus says in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. In other words, they keep my word. They're keeping my word. They're hearing my word and they're keeping my word because something supernatural has happened inside of them. And the question that comes is, are you hearing his voice, not the words of a man? Are you hearing his words as a treasure to your soul? Are you joyfully following him? And if you are, this is not some subjective thing where you hear a still small voice leading you in whatever path you already want to go in. This is the question. Are you hearing the words of Jesus coming to you by the Spirit of God today with things he actually said in the book? I'm not denying that God by the Spirit will not prompt us and lead us and give us inclinations towards things that aren't specifically laid out in the Scriptures. But here's what I'm saying. When it comes to your eternal soul and where you expect to spend eternity, do not trust a subjective feeling without an authoritative word from this book. And the Son of God, the Son of Man, has come to seek and save the lost, He tells you. He says He's come not to be served, but to serve. What does that mean? That He'll give His life a ransom for many. To believe that message and be willing to face all manner of opposition. The question I'm left with asking today is, is there hope for Sodom? Is there hope for the world out there? I'll tell you right now, if you don't think so, then there's not hope for you either. If you esteem yourself as to being greater than the world, if there's not hope for them, there's not hope for you. But the glorious message we have is there is mercy to be found both to you and to the lost world. There is deliverance from the present darkness. Why? God has come down. Jesus Christ has manifested the Father. So we pray with Isaiah, rend the heavens and come down. Here's the message. He has. 
He has. And maybe you're wondering, brother, if you're telling me Jesus answered Isaiah's prayer when he became incarnate, why do you go on praying that today? Here's why. As Jesus ascends back to the Father, he's promised to us that he's going to send the Spirit into the world. And on Pentecost, the Spirit came. And since then, he's continued his life-giving work. And every time the Spirit of God gives new life to a human being, it's God rending the heavens once again. And that work must go on. And it's able to go on and it will go on effectually till every heart which He purchased with His own blood is made His own. He will continue this work in His people. Are you hearing His voice today? The line in the song, the greatest treasure, the wellspring of my soul, we say wellspring of my soul that it's overflowing with love for this Jesus. I compel you as we continue working through the Gospel of John chapter 17 in Jesus' prayer, realize everything He's saying to the Father is with absolute certainty. Absolute certainty. And the question for you to ask, if you hear this message today, and many may be tempted to hear it, and I know many in the world will hear this and say, how can you say Jesus' words are only to be applied to a few, to chosen ones by God and not the whole world? If that's your response, you're not listening. You're not listening. The message comes to you today and says, are you one who's believing His Word? Are you one listening to the word of Christ and trusting it for the sake of your own soul? If your inclination is to hear that and begin measuring what that means to other people and not first to yourself, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Jesus, his work in saving those given to him by the Father, will be completed. And at that day, that last glorious day, whenever it comes, this year, this night, and a thousand more years, there will be righteousness on the earth. And until then, we can face a world of hate and opposition and violence and filth and greed and know this Jesus will not fail in redeeming those given to Him by the Father. And so we go with confidence that the victorious Christ if you have not come to trust in Him, I pray you would. This message is for those, any who recognizes they are one in need of a Savior, mighty to save. With that, I will ask you to bow with me and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, I thank You for Your greatness and Your glory. Father, I thank You for Your Son. I praise you that you have shown us your glory in his face, that we see even dimly now your glory in him. Lord, we long for the day where we will see him even as we're seen, when the stain of sin upon the world is entirely removed and the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwell. We long for the day, O oh God, and yet until that day, I pray for boldness and courage to not cower or whimper in terror, but to face this world as your sent ones. Lord, give us grace to take the message of Christ to the world and to worship Him 
to worship you, worship the Spirit. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.